The day of Jia Zhong's birthday arrived, and all the members of the Ningguo and Rongguo households were gathered together to celebrate it. Just as the festivities were at their height, one of the janitors from the main gate burst in on the assembled company. The master of the imperial bedchamber, Mr. Xia, is on his way, sir, with an announcement from His Majesty the Emperor. Jia She, Jia Zheng, and the rest were taken completely by surprise, quite unable to guess what the meaning of this visitation could be. Hurriedly giving orders for the players to halt their performance, and for all traces of the feast to be cleared away, they caused a table with burning incense, which would be required for the reading of the proclamation, if there was one, to be set down in its place. Then, throwing open the centre of the three main gates, they knelt down in the entrance of the mansion to receive their visitor. Soon, Xia Bingzhong, the eunuch master of the bedchamber, arrived on horseback with a retinue of eunuchs at his back. He appeared to have no imperial proclamation or other document on his person, for instead of dismounting, as etiquette prescribed that he should if he was carrying a written instrument, he rode straight on to the foot of the main hall. There, with beaming countenance, he got down from his horse, climbed the steps, faced south, and gave utterance to the following announcement. By order of His Imperial Majesty, Jia Zheng is commanded to present himself at court immediately for private audience with His Imperial Majesty in the Hall of Reverence. everybody and welcome to another exciting installation of rereading the stone i'm kevin wilson joined as always by william jones will how's it going today good very excited as always to be discussing dreams and dust and human affairs in the 18th century how about you uh doing awesome yes dreams dust Red dust, yellow dust, uh, lots going on. Uh, so this is chapter 16. Jia Yuanchun is selected for glorious promotion to the imperial bedchamber. And Qin Zhong is summoned for premature departure on the journey into night. Uh, how about we do the recap first and then we go over some uh, first impressions. What do you, what do you, how does that sound? Sure. So the past couple of chapters have been dealing with the death of Lady Qin, Qin Shi, or Qin Ke Qin, who is one of the women of the Ning branch of the Jia clan. The Jia clan being this rich noble household, which is kind of at the center of our story. Anyway, she died a couple of chapters back, and in the previous chapter to the one we're going to discuss today, 
the main characters are all uh, in her funeral procession, which is traveling to a place called the Temple of the Iron Threshold. And on the way, they meet uh, one of the royal princes, uh, a guy called the Prince of Beijing, who um, is a kind of very important guy and is, is by kind of stopping to observe the profession is uh, the procession is showing them you know quite a lot of kind of respect uh, anyway he wants to meet Jia Baoyu our main character who is a, a teenage boy and he is thought to be kind of fateful or destined in some way because he was born with this small piece of jade inside his mouth and this jade is a kind of magical stone anyway the prince of Beijing wants to meet him they they talk you know and he says, yeah, you're a very impressive young man. And if you ever want to come around to my house and, you know, learn from some of the um, intelligent and interesting people that I, I have in my household, then, you know, you're welcome to. And then he gives him a small gift, which is a, a kind of rosary uh, that he, he had previously carried with him. The procession moves on and Jia Baoyu, our main character, uh, his, his aunt, uh, Wang Xifeng, and Jia Baoyu's friend, Qin Zhong, stop in a farmhouse by the side of the road to take a brief rest and kind of have a little bit of food and drink. And while they're there, uh, Baoyu has this passing moment uh, with, a, with a teenage girl there. Um, he's being given a tour of the farm and he's asking what all of the different tools and implements do. And he sees something that he doesn't recognize and he goes over to to touch it and out of nowhere this young woman you know reaches out and tells him off uh, which is a kind of a breach of protocol because she's a she's just a peasant and he's a kind of lofty noble uh, but the thing that he's trying to touch is a is a, a spinning wheel and she knows that if he fiddles with it uh, you know he could break it and and that would be very expensive for these for these poor peasants anyway eventually they have to pack up and leave but he feels this kind of longing in his heart for her and, and kind of knows he'll never see her again. Uh, and we see her watching him disappear as well. So there's a feeling that the, there's a sense that the feeling is mutual. Anyway, after the funeral itself, the three of them, our protagonist, Jia Baoyu, his friend, Qin Zhong, and his aunt, Wang Xifeng, decide to stay, uh, stay over at a nearby priory, Watermoon Priory. Uh, and while they're there, Broadly, two things happen. On the one hand, Jia Baoyu and Qian Zhong get to kind of playing around with one of the young nuns, um, who's known as Sapientia in the Hawks translation. She's a nun of about the same age as them, and Qian Zhong is uh, very much in love with her, and, and she with him. And while they're there, there is a kind of sex scene um, between Sapientia and Qian Zhong, uh, which is interrupted by Jia Baoyu ostensibly on the pretext that uh, Qin Zhong had pretended he didn't like this girl and then lo and behold he did and, and Bao Yu was, you know, had been sneaking around watching them to prove himself right. But we get the sense that there's actually more of a kind of a jealousy there because Bao Yu himself has romantic feelings for his friend. And the other thing that happens is Wang Xifeng is approached by the, the nun in charge of the priory uh, who's called uh, Yua Jizia. Uh, again, a kind of a classical derived name in the English translation. And she asks Wang Xifeng if she might use some of her, her kind of power and influence to help out with a small matter. Basically, another priory in another part of the country has a rich benefactor 
whose daughter has got into a bit of trouble. So she was betrothed to one man, uh, and then another richer, more powerful man saw her and fell in love. And there is this kind of struggle between the two suitors. An army captain, who was the first one to be betrothed to her, and then this richer man. And the army captain has started being very unpleasant and threatened to take people to court and things. And so the family of the bride-to-be now wants to end the betrothal uh, by any means necessary. And so the reason Yu Ejizia is asking is because she knows that Wang Xifeng's family has a relationship with this captain's superior officer. And if they speak to him, maybe he can convince the captain to break off the engagement. So at first, Wang Xifeng is uninterested, but the abbess, the, the nun in charge, kind of appeals to her sense of pride. She says, well, if you don't do it, you know, it's such a minor thing. People will say that, you know, your family actually isn't all that rich and powerful and important anyway. Uh, so she convinces her to do it for the princely sum of 3,000 tails of silver, which uh, which we think is a very significant sum of money. Um, and so she does, she, she forges a letter in her husband's name. She sends it off to this general and the general convinces the captain to be done with the marriage and that's pretty much where we leave it uh at the very end of the chapter the party of three returns to to the capital to their home and then in this chapter we have a series of different things happening first we have the kind of tail end of that the story of the the unlucky woman stuck in the middle of two suitors uh and we hear that the captain is convinced to break off his his pursuit of this woman so that she can marry the other man but she is so kind of emotional about the whole thing, she ends up hanging herself with a scarf, and uh, and then the captain drowns himself. Uh, and so it all ends very sadly. But Wang Xifeng gets her money, and so she seems to be perfectly happy about it. And then we have a, a kind of unexpected announcement, which is that the, uh, the emperor has selected one of the young women of the Jia clan to be his concubine. The woman in question is Yuan Chun, who's one of a number of uh, young women in the household who all have this um, this word chun meaning spring in their name, and so this is um, this is a great kind of um, elevation for her, and it does a great honor to the family. So they're very excited about that, and there's a lot of work required because they need to rebuild one part of their household into a new kind of separate area that the emperor can come to uh, if he chooses to stay at the household with his new concubine. Then separately, two characters uh, who had left the household a couple of chapters earlier now return. And they are Jia Lian, the husband of Wang Xifeng, the woman who had pulled all these different strings for the, the, the young woman at the centre of this competition between suitors. So it's her husband who's returned, and he had been accompanying Lin Daiyu, who's a, a young woman of the household as well, uh, who's father has recently just died um and he lived in another part of the country so they had traveled there to uh attend to him in his final days and also arrange his funeral so much of the chapter is taken up with the news of the two of them returning and conversations between Jia Lian and Wang Xifeng who were very kind of it seems kind of happily reunited at the very end of the chapter we tie up one more loose end from the previous chapter so as I mentioned, Jia Baoyu's friend, Qian Zhong, is in this kind of love affair with 
a nun from the Watermoon Priory called Sapientia. And she decides to uh, run away from the nunnery to be with him. And her escape to be with Qin Zhong is discovered by Qin Zhong's father, a man called Qin Bangye, who is very kind of strict and upright. And so when he discovers this, he forbids the union, he beats his son very severely, and then he himself has a relapse of an old illness and dies. And his son, being very shocked by the whole affair and his father's sudden death, himself suffers uh, from a sudden onset of illness. And we see that this illness just about carries him off at the end of the chapter. And that is where we leave things. Right. I mean, this chapter is incredibly scattered. Uh, There's just so much going on. It's sort of disorienting a little bit. Uh, It doesn't have one consistent mood. Maybe because it is a transitional moment, and there is this sudden, uh, this sudden announcement of Yuan Chun's uh, promotion, and, and so the whole house is in a frenzy. There's this uh, incredible commotion, and at the same time, Bao Yu is really separated from all of it. He uh, is dealing with his own issues with uh, his friends, his, his ailing friend Qin Zhong, and. Uh, and at the same time, Dai Yu is also coming home. So there's, there's people leaving, there's people arriving, there's people leaving uh, the, the mortal coil. Uh, so it's kind of, I, I guess it's natural that there really isn't uh, like one, uh, you know, it, it's like a kind of a, a mix of different colors and tones and sounds. And and so like as a chapter, yeah. I really was a little bit disoriented. Uh, I was trying to look for uh, like an overarching theme or a way to, uh, are we to contrast uh, what, what's happening with uh, Yuan Chun, with Bao Yu's own predicament? Uh, or are we supposed to, in our mind, worry about one more than the other? And uh, and then there's a really, the scene with uh, uh, Feng is really subtle. You get a sense that there's things happening and, and uh, there, there seems to be some deception. Some Shifeng is not completely honest with uh, Jalian. And, uh, and so their relationship seems to have this, uh, a lot of irony and uh, a kind of um, a, a bubbling tension, I think. I think you're right. There's a, there's a lot going on under the surface in that scene um, that I think we will have to try to unpick. Right, and and, and so there's a lot of like a lot, a lot of subtle messaging, uh, and, and so we have to kind of just I, I think we have to just go through um, some of the main events. I do want to uh, you know my favorite moments. It's like you you have this this chaos, and then you have these like what a few like uh, beautiful scenes, especially you know every time you know. Dai Yu appears on the screen, you, you know something uh, kind of uh, poetic is going to happen because she's the embodiment of uh, like poetry and grace in some in some regards, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's kind of a like a, a reprieve from uh, from the madness. And uh, at the same time, there's also this things are being constructed. There's a whole uh, a whole new wing of the compound it's going to combine the 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 ningguo and the rongguo branches to create this um reception area for when yuan chun visits again you know now as 
occupying this um, this new social role, and so she ha- she needs a special kind of a ceremonial. Her return home will always have this kind of this ceremonial capacity to it from from this moment forward. Um, and what's really interesting about this chapter is that in all of this, uh, it's like we get a sense for what what everyone's feeling except Yuan Chun. And, and I wonder if that's a kind of subtle commentary underlying all of this. Yeah. Because uh, I really want to, of all the people like who whose like mental state I'm most interested in right now, she's on the top of the list. Uh, and there's not even like not even a sentence about her state of mind. And I wonder uh, whether that's intentional. And so if we get back to the theme of whether each chapter is a dream or not, it's like, is this? This, sure, this surely doesn't seem as if it's uh, Yuan Chun's dream. Uh, although, although if we were if we recall back to um, her her poem from uh, chapter five, you know she's the one who you know I have it here in the Hawks. Uh, you shall, when twenty years in life's hard school are done, in pomegranate time, to palace halls ascend, and so, and, and then it goes on. Lo, three springs never could with your first spring compare. When hair meets tiger, your great dream shall end. Uh, and so this is a really important moment in her life, her great dream, you know, this, this concept of life as a great dream that we saw in chapter five as a, you know, a reference from the Zhuangzi brought to the, the present moment. Uh, and so this is her moment of ascending to palace halls. Okay. So, uh, but at the same time, is this her dream? Like you don't see her, uh, you know, like ideational and des- spaces of desire represented uh, directly at all. Um, yeah, we we've had no suggestion that this is something that she desperately yearns for uh, or has right. been dreaming of her. But but you know that said, it certainly is a very significant opportunity. I suppose I don't know for certain, but I get the feeling that. In this type of society, you know, one would be expected to, if you were to be in her position, you would be expected perhaps to put your own desires below those of, you know, kind of your parents or, or family or, you know, some kind of higher, better cause. Um, what do you think that her um, her elevation kind of means for her and for her family? Because I think it's, it's difficult, you know, it may be difficult to grasp exactly what... I, I think we get a sense already... Uh really in the in the construction of this um this new space this new kind of uh reception space and the way it's presented in this book in this chapter is that you know look how gracious the emperor is he thought you know maybe once per month you have this opportunity to turn home but you have to have a special space that accommodates various members I my sense is that members of the palace are going to accompany her, uh, maybe even observe her at all times, and so, you know, it, it is a, a kind of honor at the same time that it's it's very clear that her uh, freedom is going to be heavily restricted. So it's it's on one hand you're basically a prisoner, right? On the other hand, you're going to be you know just like uh just like Lady Lee in the Zhuangzi, you're going to be fed you know with uh hay fed and grain fed beasts you know you're gonna have the best food it's gonna be organic it's gonna be good it's gonna be it's gonna be a very gilded cage then is what yes you're saying. yes 
I, I mean, from her perspective, she's going to become a part of the imperial household. Mm-hmm. So her already, I suppose, pampered life will become, in material terms, yet more kind of luxurious. There is the mm-hmm. possibility, I suppose, that she's she's a concubine, so she's not on the same status as a a wife, but she's perhaps one rung below that. You know, she is a is a romantic and sexual partner to the emperor, mm-hmm. and as such, may end up bearing the emperor a son. Uh, and then, if that son kind of grows to adulthood, he may end up becoming heir and indeed becoming emperor himself. Although you kind of think it's it's definitely not a given. It's a it's a it's a possibility, but certainly not probable. But then, just as easily, she could become. You know, if she treads on the wrong toes, she sh- she could become the victim of some kind of palace intrigue, uh, collateral damage in some kind of infighting at the palace, or she could mm. simply just the the emperor could lose interest in her, and she could be kind of just cast aside and and, and thrown in the scrap heap. Mm. So, or you know, maybe another another consort or the, the queen might uh, perceive her as a threat and her very life might be uh, endangered. And, and so it really could go either way. Um, so not necessarily the most enviable position, uh, although we'll see she's still going to interact with the household in really meaningful ways, even if it is often uh, mediated by ritual, by ceremony, and even at, at times by poetry, we're going to see. Uh, she's going to interact with the uh, the family members through uh, through poetry games and and riddles uh, in, in a few chapters. Uh, so I'm I'm actually really looking forward to the, to that material. So look, I mean, shall we shall we just tie up the first section because that that I think we can address very quickly. I mean, as as mentioned, this is the kind of the, the tail end of Wang Xifeng's first kind of entry into the world of. Uh, kind of cash for favors uh if you want to call it that so as we discussed she has taken a very handsome sum of money to use her her family's influence to yeah convince this this army general to require his captain to break off this betrothal to the daughter of this wealthy family and you know she does and so it looks like things are going to be okay but instead as we heard the daughter, the woman at the center of this kind of love triangle, uh, ends up hanging herself. I was a little confused, actually, because in the Hawks, it says the captain's son, too, turned out to be a young person of unexpectedly romantic notions. For in hearing that, that Jinga had hanged herself, he promptly threw himself into a river and was drowned. So it's a rather sad outcome for them. Yeah, so, you know, the uh, the Shifeng body count is... What do we have now? We got uh, Jare, uh, and now these two. So three so far? I think it's just three so far. Uh, <laughs> let's let's keep track. In the uh, in the Jurian Jai commentary, the uh, the Red Inkstone uh, Studio, he, his comment is that you know of all of uh, Wang Shifeng's myriad evils, uh, this one is the worst. Oh, according really? to according to him. Yeah, because it's uh, it's like a young love. It, it uh, it was the proper condition for love, and and, and she uh, destroyed it. The author uses this the little neat four character phrase, "ren cai liang kong," um, which Hawks translates as "the maid and eke the money gone," 
which is not a phrase I'm familiar with, and I haven't been able to find where he's taken this from. Um, but but the essential meaning is people and money both gone, is is the literal translation of the Chinese, and 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 so yeah, they've ended up in the situation where they've paid a, this enormous sum of money to try to get their daughter out of a a tricky situation, and they've paid, and she has killed herself nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And so they, they've lost a daughter and they're very much out of pocket. Her suicide is characterized as an act of almost ritual propriety. Yeah. Uh, um, so she's, she's mentioned as being not only uh, like affectionate, Doqing, but also you know, one who knows Jiri, uh, who knows righteousness, mm. which is one of these um, kind of classic Confucian virtues. That's um, heavily emphasized in the like in the the classical literature that Bao Yu is supposed to be studying, but isn't. Um, mm. and, and so you see a, a definite value divergence from our, our modern day, but definitely a a pitiable character, I would say. And meanwhile, Wang Xifeng is kind of counting her silver, and um, we hear that she is emboldened by this taste of success and continues with her her schemes uh afresh i suppose i mean the the, mm. the phrase that i picked up on is um the chinese says feng jie i wang xi feng dan shi yu zhuang so dan shi is courage and insight but here i think it's used perhaps slightly sarcastically so her kind of brazenness, I suppose you might call it. Uh, and then Yu Zhuang means to become more and more strong. So we, we, we learn that this first, yeah, this first venture into this particular kind of slightly dirty mm. world has, um, from her point of view, been a success and, and the foundation for um, further ventures of the same type. Right, so the web is being uh, cast again and again. The web of cunning that was mentioned in chapter five. So then we have the announcement. As we heard, it's Jia Zheng's birthday. So he is uh, Jia Baiyu's father. He's one of the most kind of important men of the Rong branch of the Jia clan. And he's very this kind of very upright Confucian. Anyway, his birthday is interrupted by this um, announcement from one of the imperial eunuchs. Yeah, and as we hear, mm-hmm. he doesn't announce straight away what the reason for his arrival is. Um, he just demands that Jia Zheng present himself at court. So he hurries off. And, and, and I found like the, here there was a, an echo with something that happens much earlier in the, in the book. Yes. So yeah. at the end of chapter one, start of chapter two, there's the Jun family and the character Jun Shiyin, who... He has mm. this young friend, Jia Yutun, who's a kind of penniless intellectual, but with aspirations to pass the imperial uh, civil service exams and, and become part of the kind of imperial bureaucracy and, and thereby make something of himself. Zhen Shiyin pays for Jia Yutun to go off and take these exams. And then while Jia Yutun is off doing the exams, Zhen Shiyin and his family are struck by a series of calamities. First, their only child, their daughter, Ying Lian, is kidnapped. And then their house burns down and they have to go and stay with their family in the countryside and uh, Zhang Jian's father-in-law essentially 
takes all of his money and then embezzles quite a lot of it. Uh, and eventually, Jun uh, Yin runs off to be a Taoist monk. But Jun Yin's wife uh, continues living with her father, the father-in-law that, that embezzled the money. And in their town, a new magistrate comes along. And it turns out this magistrate is Jia Yutsun, but the characters don't know that. Someone is sent by the, the, the new magistrate to, to the household of uh, the Juns, demanding that Jun Yin present himself. And he's not there, so his father-in-law, Mr. Fung, has to go see the magistrate instead. Everyone in the household is very worried that something terrible is. He's been summoned because he's, you know, accused of some offence or or in trouble in some other way. But actually, it turns out that, as we already knew, this magistrate is Jia Yutsun, and he was actually sending for his old friend, Jun uh, Yin. And so this scene that we're looking at right now kind of recalls that earlier one, but in grander style, I suppose. You have Jia Zheng going off to the imperial court, and everyone else at home kind of terribly worried about what's going on. There are two phrases that use is four characters at a time, and the last two are bu ding, which means kind of like unstable, unfixed, constantly moving. Anxious, uh, alarmed, un- unsettled, I would say, would be a, a nice direct translation of bu ding. So you um, kind of think, you know, un- yeah. any of the things you would associate with that pacing, uh, kind of wringing your hands. And we hear that they are, you kind of constantly, incessantly sending riders to the palace to try to get some kind of news. So, you know, you feel like they send one servant on horseback to go and find out what's going on. And before he's even got back, they've sent another one to follow up and mm. find out. And then as soon as the first one gets back with no news, well, they they put another one on horseback to follow up. And so you imagine this kind of constant stream of them. And they're described as fema, literally flying horses. So you can imagine that, you know, they're, they're making them really go at a gallop, you know. After about four hours... The chief steward of the Rongguo mansion, uh, a man called uh, Lai Da, he arrives and he says that all of the women of the household have got to come to the palace to give thanks to the emperor for the great favor that he's shown them. And so you kind of think at this point, does does the emperor or does the imperial palace, do they just enjoy mystery? Do they just enjoy scaring people out of their wits for fun? And so they all prepare themselves to go. And then uh, eventually Lai Da lets slip that he overheard that Jia Yuanchun, one of the young women of the household, has been selected as a, an imperial concubine. Yeah, in the Hawks translation, it says, your eldest young lady has been appointed chief secretary to the empress and is to become an imperial concubine. And so that at once dispels the anxiety that everyone is feeling. Um, and so they're all terribly excited by this. Um, yes, it's a cause for great celebration. Yeah, so, so just... Just one thing I want to pick up on. The person who gives the news originally about the Imperial eunuch, the one who first arrives with information, is referred to as a a janitor. But I don't think that's exactly what he is. He's referred to in the Chinese as men shi. Men being a gate or door, and shi being... It's some kind of servant figure. So Mm -hmm. a kind of doorkeeper, doorman, something like that. The only reason I mention it is because we've talked about before how doorways passing through gates okay. uh, and kind of gates themselves generally play an important role in this story as kind of turning points or as places where the story progresses. I think that this is the author telling us that this is going to be 
a liminal moment for the story, right? It's where it's going to cross a new threshold into a different part of the a different part of the story. Mm. This is a this is a kind of turning point, you know. Mm. Yeah. So this is it's it's noteworthy that also it's a eunuch that uh, arrives with the message because there's somebody you know. It's if you want to talk about the you know, the gateways to the body, the, the whole system is, is built around this individual's you know kind of a. a manipulation of of their bodily liminality so it's it's um, the sexless one that has come to give the the message that the young woman is to become this this new sexual partner of the emperor right so he's i, I mean there's a long history of um kind of the power and sometimes the corruption of eunuchs in chinese history but the original idea behind this practice was that you know this would secure this um this private uh space so that there there would be no risk of um any bloodline other than the emperor's bloodline being implicated um yeah the only male servants permitted within the royal household would be ones who were not really i mean not capable of making anyone pregnant yeah so it's definitely yeah, kind of patrolling the, the liminal spaces. Okay, so, so they're given these, this exciting news, and everyone is very excited about it, except for one character. Uh, and that is, you know, of course, our, our central protagonist, uh, Jia Baoyu. Yes, the hero, kind of. <laughs> is he the hero? I think he's as close as we get to the hero. Uh, no, I'm on team Daiyu, so <laughs> we, we get to choose your own hero. Uh, <laughs> so why is he so downcast? I, well, I mean, we we kind of know already. You know, we know that uh, Qin Zhong is is ailing. He is about to die, basically, and Bao Yu knows this. Uh, I think he actually asked permission from his mother, uh, Lady Wang, to visit Qin Zhong in his final moments. And I, I believe his mother says something to the effect of, you know, okay, but don't linger around there too long. You know, we're pretty busy here. Your presence is required, I think is the implication. Yeah, exactly. She's, she, um, it's, uh, it's actually grandmother Jia. So, so one, one rung higher up the, oh, okay. the kind of hierarchy of seniority. But she says exactly that. Yeah. You must come back as soon as it's over. It being presumably Qin Zhong's death. Don't hang about. We get a very clear sense of the contrast between how important this is to Jia Baoyu compared to how important it is to everyone else, which is to say not very important at all. They're really fixated on the news about uh, Yuan Chun becoming a concubine. And this was just after mourning uh, Qin Zhong's sister's death. Uh, so there is a, a kind of a, a little bit of a contradiction there. Yeah, it's a, it's a slightly right. uncomfortable contrast, isn't it? Um, it's true that, yeah, you know, uh, Qin Zhong wasn't incorporated into the, the Jia household in the same way. But it makes you wonder, it, it makes the, the whole proceedings around uh, Qin Ka Ching's death seem even more artificial, in, in my eyes at least. Yeah, so I mean, the Qin's were only really part of the household through her, because she was, as you say, married to Jia Rong. So one of the young men of the, the Ning branch of the household. But it is remarkable how differently the significance of their deaths is treated. But we, we'll come on to that later. The, the actual Qin Zhong death scene is, is kind of later in the, in the chapter. 
Yeah. And I also want to add that, you know, it really seems at this time that death is a more common sort of thing. Mm. Uh, and so I just think like overall health standards were much lower. And when somebody dies, it's not the same feeling as when people die nowadays. Just so, so much more commonplace, right? Is there any truth to that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, then again, we've, we've definitely normalized a lot of, uh, uh, COVID-19 deaths. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess true. it's it's all relative. Uh, and so I, I, I guess the, the only thing that really uh, lightens uh, Bao Yu's spirits is, of course, the return of uh, Lin Dayu from the South from having mourned uh, the death of her father. And so she returns with uh, Jia Lian and also Jia Yutun, who we just who we just mentioned a moment ago. Uh, in con in connection with chapter one, um, so the once the once penniless intellectual turned good is yeah returning with them to the capital. So he's had a bit of a varied career. As we said, he started out penniless, then he passed the exams and was appointed a magistrate, but then he managed to step on the wrong toes and was uh, he fell out of favor with the emperor, and so he spent some time traveling the country. And then for a while, he was uh, a kind of tutor to none other than Lin Dayu. Um, and then he was subsequently restored to favor uh, and returned to a new posting in the south. But it appears now that he's been mm -hmm. promoted to a position within the capital itself, hence accompanying them. And so when um, Lin Dayu returns, we have this funny scene where uh Jia Bao Yu mm -hmm. wants to give her some kind of gift to say it's you know I'm happy to see you again to to welcome her back and the gift that he decides upon is the same rosary that was given to him by the prince of Beijing uh at the start of the previous chapter so during the funeral procession they ran into this um this royal prince the royal prince demanded to speak to Bao Yu because he's such a kind of interesting, special young boy, and he makes him a gift of this of this kind of rosary of sorts. They're kind of Buddhist prayer beads. Yes, um, fragrant Indian beads in the Hawks translation. Yeah, and so there's quite a difference in reaction when Jia Bao Yu receives it. He is very kind of grateful, and he and a couple of the other mem members of his family who are around all make the kind of appropriate signs of uh, thanks but when Bao Yu then tries to give it to Dai Yu she throws it back in his face <laughs> I'm really interested to see what your reaction to this was because I, I mean again I'm on team Dai Yu I totally agree I think it was a lame gift and Bao Yu has to try harder I don't think it's a very impressive gift yeah I mean she seems to have bought lots and lots of things to give to him and to others when they were on the you know, on their travels. And her gifts are maybe not as valuable, but they're more thoughtful. They're more appropriate. They kind of, they fit the context a little bit better. But I really do think, I agree. She says, you know, uh, you know, in the Hawks translation, what, you want me to carry a thing? That's some coarse man that the Chinese is, Cho uh, Nanran, had pawned over. Stinking man. Stinking man, yeah. I don't want it. Uh, and like, I I have to agree. It's it's not an appropriate like it's it's it is some like coarse kind of thing that one guy gave to another guy. It doesn't seem maybe maybe it's too traditional of me, but it doesn't seem gender appropriate. I don't, I don't know. 
Uh, it just doesn't seem like it, it doesn't seem like a thoughtful gift on his part necessarily. So it's like it's it's pure val it's pure value, you know. It's it's maybe highly valuable, uh, but it's not thoughtful. There's yeah. a kind of echoing of if you think about the way that Bao Yu received it, his position vis-a-vis the Prince of Beijing is he's in a significantly lower social position when he receives the gift from him. Whereas he and Dayu are ostensibly equals. So him giving her the same gift somehow suggests that he's holding himself in a higher position than her, in as comparatively a higher position to her as the Prince of Beijing was to him. So you can see why, in that sense, she might be offended by it as an mm. inappropriate act. Interesting, yeah. And so it's not... Maybe the the thing about it being a something a, some coarse man has handled is 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 just an excuse. It, it also recalled in my mind in chapter three when she first meets Bao Yu, she makes some passing comment about the jade that he wears around his neck. You know, this one that was found in his mouth when he was born. And this passing comment she makes sets him off. You know, it 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 really makes him rage. You know, he he tears off the jade and hurls it across the floor. And it just seems like a similar kind of, a similar kind of reaction. I think. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Um... The reason I think of it is because they're both a rejection of maleness embodied in an object. When Bao Yu does it, he says, "None of the girls have it. Only I've got one." And so it's a on a very crude level, it's a kind of penis metaphor. And here, that symbolism I think is less clear, but. The fact that she refers to it as something that some coarse man has poured over, um, or some stinking, so it, it's its fragrance becomes uh, it goes from being a positive to a negative quality. Yeah, yeah, its fragrance has become kind of noxious. Mm. Um, I just thought that there was a kind of parallel there. I can't quite place exactly what it what it signifies. I also wanted to mention, uh, just in passing, that when Bao Yu sees her after having after her having been absent for so long, uh, in the Hawks translation, it reads, he recognized the same ethereal quality he had always known in her, but it seemed to have deepened and, and intensified during her absence. And actually, what uh, in the original, the, 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 this deepening and intensifying is actually true uh, law, which means to, to blossom, actually. So it's a it's it's a pretty uh, clear flower oh. metaphor, um, and so I, I think this is an important kind of a signal that uh, that that uh, Dayu is coming into her own, so to speak, um, and, and this yeah, and so she has what Hawks has a sort of ethereal quality in the original is chao yi, which means extraordinary. I'm not sure if it has that same kind of, um, you know, the same kind of otherworldly implication, but definitely out of the ordinary, definitely special. This is certainly, this is certainly a case of absence making the heart grow fonder. We can, we can definitely say that. Yeah, yeah. So this is, overall, this is my favorite scene from this chapter. It's a bit of, uh, there's a lot of like vegetables, I think, in this chapter, and this is a nice sort of a, a treat. A bit of a, you know, something delicate and sweet. 